Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 30 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. Ray Ray the Machine. And I'm joined here by my civilized co-host, former market maker of 20 years. Nowadays, he's looked upon as a spokesman for reformed degenerates, a man who sees the markets clearer than the tops worn by the women of South Florida, the man who seems to have a bottomless pit of analogies. I'm talking about JJ, JJ. How's it going? Good, brother. How are you doing today? Doing excellent. <clears throat> doing well, I guess excellent given the conditions of, you know, what's going on. <laughs> and so our guest today, a man who traveled the world backgammon circuit. He then graduated on to become a professional poker player, winning a prestigious World Series of Poker bracelet and a cool $400,000 in his first major tournament. He then landed a trading job at Goldman Sachs and went on to manage $1.6 billion portfolio for a preeminent U.S. macro hedge fund. The founder of Cerebral Gym, the world's first gym for the mind. I'm talking about James Vogel. James, how's it going, brother? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent, man. You know, appreciate you joining us. You know, I miss all this chaos going on in the world i mean how's it how's it going over there in europe well it's pretty surreal time you know we, we went traded through the 08 09 financial crisis and and, and this mm-hmm. is nothing like it. it it just feels you walk down the street and it's like a ghost town it's a zombie even in central london wow uh, um just an exa- as an example my father is 76 he's sort of not feeling great and may have a temperature uh, they won't even test him in the hospital, and um, you can't even buy a thermometer. Amazon has sold out for a month. Oh, wow. uh, I go to four local chemists. They don't have any. You know, so I ended up borrowing one um, from a friend, and, and you know, luckily he doesn't have it, so he doesn't look like he's got the corona, but it's uh, crazy times. Wow. That, that is amazing. Yeah, yeah, sure it is. Well, you know, thanks. Um, thanks again for joining us. Um, and so, so for the listeners, uh, you've uh, written a book, uh, which is yet to be published, but you know, I've been lucky enough, you know, you sent me a manuscript. It's great. I'm about two thirds of the way through, uh, give or take. Uh, you mentioned something I wanted to start off asking you about. You, you were offered to host a reality show teaching 13 uh, year old girls how to gamble. Uh, what, what was this about? No, 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 no. It wasn't quite 13 year old girls. Was, <laughs> well, that's what you said. That's what you wrote. Wait, wait. And we're in trouble. He's switching the. And we're in trouble. Pull up. 13, 13 girls, not 13 year olds. <laughs> oh, I misread <laughs> it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Horizon low. Pull up. Go, pull up. I better go and check that. Yeah, I thought that was weird. I was like, wait, wait, why is it? <laughs> but yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Well, you me. remember back when, when, when poker exploded in the early 2000s and yeah. I won this bracelet in 2004, uh, you know, there were sort of crazy ideas, every kind of spinoff from poker. And one of them was, you know, the reality TV shows at the time were like Big Brother. And they were thinking, could they do one in a casino where they, they teach amateurs, or, as it happens, 13 girls, the, 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 the thesis for the show, uh, how to gamble. Um, uh, I couldn't really see myself saying, "Oh, this is roulette." You know, you spin, you spin the wheel, and just see where the ball lands. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, was, it wasn't really for me, but uh, it was fl- flattered to be asked. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I apologize. Not thirteen-year-old girls. <laughs> I was like, I was like, yeah, what? Like child, what child protective <laughs> services. Please be aware that was an error. 
<laughs> I wasn't ever right, right. So yeah, so James, so you know, I, I mentioned in the intro, you, you know, you went from backgammon to poker to trader, now uh, founder of a company, entrepreneur. Um, I one thing I didn't list was you were a tennis player in your youth. Um, you spoke on this in the book. You know, I I think there was a good, you know, it's a good story and a good lesson from it. Do you, you mind sharing it with us? Yeah, I wouldn't go as far as calling myself a tennis player. I tried to play tennis. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was one of these things where where uh, I just got dragged into it uh, at my local club where where I'd always been a member. Uh, this Russian coach came over. His name was Konstantin. He was about six foot five. Played in Wimbledon. I think he won like maybe seven Russian championships, but he wasn't allowed to travel during communism. So oh. He was just the most. He never made it to the, the, the highest ranks, but he was the most wonderful player. Beautiful technique. And he attracted loads of top juniors to this this very local club near where I live, and um, I just sort of got caught up in it with all the other kids that were playing, and and all of a sudden I was playing all the time. I think I started seriously when I was about fourteen, which is much too late. You know, I mean, if you want to be a good tennis player, you've got to start at five or six, really, uh, at the latest. Um, but I really enjoyed it, and just after school every day, uh, found myself playing. And then my whole holiday time was traveling to tournaments. And I think when I, fin when I finished high school, I took one, one year as a gap year to play tennis and travel the satellite circuit. And I said to myself, if I didn't get a world ranking uh, uh, that year, I'd give it up and go to college. Uh, and I didn't really win a single match on tour. So uh, it was an easy decision for me to, to make to give it up. Uh, basically. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, I, I like because the, 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 you know, what you proceeded to say was kind of like, you have to choose the right endeavor for you, right? That was kind of like your point is that like, you didn't have the natural skill. And so you putting all the effort into it wasn't maximizing, I guess, your expected value, as you said in the book. Yeah, exactly. I think at the time, uh, when you're in your early teens, you don't really think about it. You just, you just do what you enjoy. Right. Um, Later, I realized you want to position yourself in the game where, you, where you've got an innate talent or right. something you can do well in, like naturally. Right. And it just so happened that like the last tennis tournament I played uh, was at the end of the summer of this gap year. And there was a backgammon tournament that very same day that was happening. I got knocked out of the tennis tournament in the morning. My father happened to see this backgammon tournament was advertised and said, oh, you know, you fancy yourself as a backgammon player, go along. I went along and somehow managed to win a bronze medal, so came in third. And I never played in a tournament. I never played competitively backgammon before. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, I could have just been lucky, but I met some people there at the tournament. They invited me to the club. I thought they were trying to hustle me at the beginning, but very quickly, so sort I of realized uh, you know, I could hold my own and, and was winning money straight away when I started. And it was, I was just much more of a natural. Right. And, it, and it came easily. And there's this paradox of, of whether things come easily in life or not, or you have to work at them. And obviously everything you have to work at, but, but when some, when something's easy, it doesn't feel like work. Uh, so I would play 60 hours a week and got totally consumed and dragged into this world. Backgammon. Uh, but looking back now, um, all those years playing tennis, really, obviously I, it wouldn't have been healthy if I was gambling and be, playing backgammon in, in, in my teens. But there were so many other things I could have done, mm -hmm. probably other than tennis, which would have uh, had better results for me. 
Right, 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 for sure. And then, and then backgammon, you play in backgammon, that's how you got introduced to poker, correct? Yeah, it was a natural progression because the mm -hmm. backgammon world started to die out a little bit when these computer programs came in that, that played perfect backgammon and everyone's level improved. Uh, and not many people wanted to gamble on it anymore. And it was sort of a lot of poker play, a lot of backgammon players made the transition, plus Hansen being uh, the foremost of them. And he sort of very early, big early successes in the on the World Poker Tour in the early 2000s. And then a lot of other backgammon players copied and the vast majority do very well in, in poker because the the training from backgammon is very similar. It's all about risk reward and thinking analytically in terms of EV. Um, so it was a pretty natural progression, although I didn't necessarily take to poker like a duck to water. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I would say it took me probably six months to a year just to break even. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas backgammon, I was pretty much winning from the first month. From right away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Was was Gus like really the first one to, uh, I guess, like represent the backgammon players? Did did others see his success and then kind of follow suit? I think even going back further, Eric Seidel used to be a backgammon. Oh yeah, player. Seidel. That's uh, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jason Lester. I think that there were a lot. There were lots of them from from the eighties. Okay. Um, um, okay. Yeah, because they were playing in New York. They were playing in New York clubs. I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is it the Beverly or the Mayfair? Um, of a Cavendish, but I think um, Gus from my generation, or Gus is just slightly older than me. Uh, yeah, I think he was the first. Okay, was cool. Is uh, was his uh, backgammon style anyway like similar to poker style? You know, I don't really know anything about backgammon, so I don't know if that's even applicable. Yeah, there's not really a style in backgammon, you just okay. kind of make the computer moves, but he's incredibly analytical. I mean, uh, I know he's known as being a gambler and, and up and down. Well, I tell you, there's, there's not many people that think about games just quite as coherently and logically as, as him. And, he's sort of, and he works very hard at it, but he's a brilliant mind for it. Yeah, yeah, he's a, a funny character, <laughs> funny character as well. <laughs> so, you know, I... And you it's know, interesting, I, when, 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 when he uh -huh. started playing poker, he was playing a completely different style to anyone else. I mean, they, they, we watched on TV and everyone was yeah. playing so tight. Right. I, went to, I, went, I remember going to a tournament and I watched him and I think he raised like 18 consecutive hands in a row before anyone even played back at him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, he was just just walking over the fields. Uh, and then, of course, everyone everyone copied that style and it, it went full cycle. Right, right. Yeah, I, yeah. No, you know, I guess like really thinking about it now, James, he kind of was like ahead of the game back then you know what i'm yeah. saying like like with that that uh, the, that aggressive style i guess um yeah, yeah. Which, which eventually got adopted so no, that's one more poker thing and then we'll move on from that um so so you won mm -hmm. the world series of poker tournament at the what was it age of 23 correct yeah wow. yeah so yeah, in your first yeah in your first major tournament nonetheless i mean just describe like that feeling that had to have been uh, and it was in binions too before they even moved it to the rio so that that's a uh, yeah, it was the last year they held it at Binion's. Obviously, yeah. we didn't know it at the time. Um, it, it sounds crazy, but I didn't know what the World Series meant back then. Uh -huh. uh, it was the first tournament I played. I wasn't actually even in Vegas uh, to play it. I was there for another tournament, and it was starting the next day, and I, oh, I just wow. found out about it. And, oh. and someone said, why don't you play before you go home? Uh, and I said, well, how much is it? And they said, it's $2,000 to enter. So I said, yeah, why not? Uh, shipped in uh, 2000, shipped it in. And, uh, you know, 48 hours later, I won it. And I didn't even know they gave away gold bracelets for, for winning that tournament. I thought wow. the gold bracelet was only for the main event. 
So mm-hmm. it wasn't like uh, I was doing cartwheels, kind of like, wow, this has happened to me. Uh, you know, it's the most amazing thing. I was just, uh, you know, 400 grand is pretty nice for me at 23. And um, <laughs> it was kind of like a, a nice thing to happen, but it didn't have the same significance for me that, that I think it would do for a lot of people that have been trying to win a bracelet for years. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I mean, I would be absolutely thrilled. You know, not that I don't really play too many tournaments, but I, I go out to Vegas once in a while, you know, uh, during the summertime. But um, yeah, that's that had been really sweet. So so your transition into working, you know, for Goldman Sachs uh, was interesting about how it came about. Uh, you just talk about how you got offered the job and then also, you know, the decision that you kind of faced between, hey, do I continue with poker? Or do I take this job? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that, that changed my life more than winning that tournament was the, the, the knock-on effects of it rather than the actual tournament itself. Mm, okay, yeah. Uh, just, I don't know if it's fate or chance or randomness, uh, who knows. Uh, but I think the day after I won that tournament, uh, I was in Vegas and, and um, some, some of the regulars from the game back in London, uh, they called me up, uh, you know, and they were at the table and they had me on loudspeaker just to sort of congratulate me. And there was a trader at the, the table. Um, and he said, who is that guy? And they told him about me. And they said, oh, you know, he was really into poker as an amateur enthusiast. And he said, I'd like to meet him or me when I get back to London. And I, I thought, oh, everyone says they're a trader. You know, who is he? And I found out he worked for a, a fund called More Capital, mm-hmm. um, who were pretty much the most the sort of... Uh, premium name in macro uh, hedge funds, uh, Lewis Bacon, the founder. Yeah, no kidding. Been around for forever. Yeah. Um, and so when I got back to London, I went to meet him. Uh, we had lunch, I think, in a sushi place in, in Mayfair. And after <laughs> the, we, we got on pretty well. And after the lunch, straight away, Edward took me up to meet Lewis. Wow. And, you know, I was like, you know, it's pretty crazy. This guy's a billionaire. He's one of the most successful traders. Of all exactly. Time. And there you are. And I, yeah. I'm just sitting in his office and, and looking like all his quote screens around and he's not wearing any socks and sort of just sitting there <laughs> and, you know, then like watching, watching the, uh, the quote screens uh, and just sort of firing questions at me. And we were just having a, a chat really. Wow. Uh, and I, uh, and I, I think he was looking for an assistant at the time. And that's why this, this, uh, trader that worked for him introduced me uh, but he said you know what uh, you need some experience in in the markets first before you work for me mm-hmm. uh, go away and uh, get a job at a u.s investment bank and come back uh, in the future okay. uh, so basically i did and, and got a job at goldman and and um and then i ended up working for him about seven years later now let me just jump in really quick now i i have uh, my my background is the opposite end of the spectrum than goldman so, you know, we always <laughs> revered you guys from Michael Lewis's book, uh, Liar's Poker. We, you know, we know about the process of Goldman. Tell us a little bit about your experience, because I want our listeners to know what it's like to kind of go through the gears at Goldman. Uh, tell us about, you know, your, how they interviewed you, that process. Was it quick? Was it like the mm. 20 interviews that you hear about? That sort I of think thing? it was it's slightly different because Michael Lewis wrote about Salomon Brothers. Uh, yeah, he talked uh, about some of the stuff. Lehman's yeah. and City, but you know, I guess they're both big U.S. investment banks. But Salomon yeah. had a lot more characters. Goldman's quite a machine. Yes, um, you know, very corporate. Uh, yes, it was a uh, it was a sort of long interview process. It probably had about twenty, but I think uh, I sort of got the job there pretty early on in the interview stages, and, and it was more a question of 
meet everyone that works there and decide sort of which desk you're going to work on. Nice. And, and for me, the interview process was kind of fun because all they really wanted to do was talk about poker and gambling and backgammon. And, ah, and, you know, they didn't, so it wasn't too taxing. It was just sort of getting to meet people and um, uh, get a feel for, feel for the place. Now, was this when they were still a partnership or were they public at that point? Oh, they were already public. It was okay. 2004. Yeah. I think. Okay. Yeah. It was already, um, but most of, you know, a lot of the partners were hands on. I mean, they take the interview pro- process very seriously. Um, the, the number of interviews you have to go through. And I think my route in was very unusual because, you know, nowadays, or even at that time, they only really took people from, uh, you know, the graduate program. Yeah. Wharton Harbor. Um, right? yeah, yeah. You know, uh, a lot of the kids, like the first word they ever say is Bond, you know, or whatever. And, and uh, <laughs> uh, they get, end up getting jobs at Goldman. They've done internships there in, in the school holidays and through college and it's their dream. Uh, and for me, I was just, I mean, okay, I had a degree in economics from LSE, but um, I wasn't a favorite market um, mm. and it wasn't really a job I'd ever thought about doing. Uh, but I think they just wanted a bit like trading places it's an exper- <laughs> experiment with uh, yeah, exactly randolph and mortimer <laughs> yeah i think i think they kind of just wanted to see how i how i'd turn out and, oh uh, that's you know, amazing funnily enough, funnily enough i didn't turn out very well i was a hopeless market maker oh really which was the oh. job they, they hired me for oh uh, okay. yeah so the, the first two years of my career there were a bit of a shock because so did you did you work from the, with the with the crew from SLKC after they had done the uh, the merger, Spear Leeds and Kellogg? Were you I'm on that familiar, floor? I'm not familiar with them. Oh, because no, Goldman it. acquired them, uh, I think around uh-huh. 2000 or something like that. They paid six billion dollars for SLKC. All my friends worked there at uh, Spear oh, really? Leeds and Kellogg, and then they were acquired by Goldman. So that that's how I weaseled my way to a visit to the Goldman trading floor because they would have never let riffraff like me into Goldman, like even past them, you know, <laughs> like maybe to deliver a pizza, right. But not, not near their trading floor. So I got to see that floor and there was about 400 guys on that floor, guys and girls. And it was a, it was a heck of a machine. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I, mean, I was, I was in London. Uh, on the, oh, okay. I, I, never, I never actually went to the, the, the New York floor there. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, yeah, I miss I miss the graduate training and all that kind of stuff. I yeah, so, but it was definitely a culture shock being, you know, sort of uh, getting up and being in the office before six rather than going to sleep at six as a, <laughs> as a poker player. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so James, I I thought the way you broke it down, uh, you know, reading through the book, your how you decided to actually take the job as opposed to sticking with poker. Do you, do you want to speak a little bit on that? How mm. you, how you made that? Maybe I should just, uh, cause I, we haven't really said what the book is. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe I should just quickly introduce it. And so there's nothing to plug yet because it's, it's uh, up to speaking with agents and publishers now. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing to sell yet, but um, yeah, basically the book is called 51% certain and the subtitle, the working subtitle, you know, think, thinking through life like a poker player. And the idea of the book, is basically poker players, not just poker players, but all games players and traders think in kind of a similar way. And it's very different from uh, the layman. Um, and a lot of people are intimidated by gambling or probabilities or uh, um, thinking in this kind of, what, what gamblers think it's logical, but it's, it's certainly a different 
thought process, train of thought to, to uh, certainly what my, my ex-wife, uh, uh, how she thought. Um, but, uh, so the idea of the book, every, every time, say over the last four years, uh, some scenario came up in my life where I thought about something slightly different from the consensus, that there was a, a gambling or poker, that kind of back sort of, uh, underpinning for that thought process. I just jotted it down as a note on my phone uh, and had lots of sort of anecdotes as well and mixed the two together. And the idea is, you know, if, if a non-gambler or a non-trader uh, doesn't necessarily think in that way normally reads this uh, after reading the book, maybe when they come across a, a problem, they won't, they won't think totally in the same way, but they might have some more kind of uh, weapons in their armory to, to combat some certain problems. And especially when it comes to risk taking as well, mm -hmm. uh, attitude to risk taking. So when you ask me, uh, uh, how did I use that sort of poker background to decide with a job? Well, um, basically, I wasn't sure whether to take the job at Goldman uh, because I was, I just won this big poker tournament and, and the games were very good at the time, meaning I was making decent money at it and it was kind of fun, like that, like that <laughs> off of to, to do that TV show we talked about at the start of the, uh, the, the podcast. Um, and it was really a toss up for me and I couldn't decide whether to take the job. And I think I had, a, I had a serious girlfriend at the time and her father was also putting a lot of pressure on me to get a square job. Uh, yeah. uh, yep. And I couldn't decide, actually this, I, I sort of slightly altered it for the book, but what actually happened, this is a pretty crazy story, uh, was after I won the, the, the World Series, I was in Vegas uh, still playing some of the other tournaments and this girlfriend came to sort of celebrate with me and she said, look, if I come to Vegas, you can't just be playing poker the whole time. You've got to take a little bit of time off uh, to, to hang out with me. I said, fine, come out. Uh, and we sort of had fun and partied for a few days. Uh, but, you know, who wants to sit by a swimming pool in the middle of the summer in Vegas? You know, when there's sort of that poker action. And so, you know, so I, I'd one be day, I'll, be the, I'll take the pool. <laughs> You take the pool. Oh, oh yeah. You haven't, I'll got, take you haven't got that sickness. No, so, no, he doesn't. He, he's not yeah. a degenerate like us, James. He's you not know, a true degenerate. Degen yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think one night I woke up at I don't know four in the morning, uh, as you do in Vegas, sort of jet lag or not jet lag, but you know, wake up at random hours, and um, she was still sleeping, and I didn't want to wake her up, so <laughs> I didn't, uh, I didn't sort of get dressed or anything. I just slung on my dressing gown. I, walked, I was in staying in the Bellagio and I walked down in the <laughs> elevator to have a look around in my dressing gown and obviously gravitated to the poker room. Uh, and there was a great game uh, going on and I got some chips out from behind the cash desk and I sat down in the game um, and come 11 o'clock in the morning, uh, she found me in the, in the poker room and I, I was winning quite well in this game and it was, it was a really soft game. And uh, she said, look, uh, I really want to go and see the Grand Canyon. And I'd been to Vegas, I don't know, maybe half a, half a dozen times before playing backgammon and never been a poker before this. And I'd never been to the Grand Canyon. Didn't even occur to me. I was just there to play poker. Uh, and I was like, uh, her name was Laura. I was like, Laura, I can't go. I'm sorry. This game is oh, too good. Boy. And she said, no, no, you've got to go. Uh, and I, eventually I thought, look, she's come all the way out to Vegas. Um, there always be another poker game. Uh, I'm going to go and do this like helicopter tour or whatever of, of Grand Canyon and I can come back, maybe the game's still going. Um, and a guy that was sitting next to me, just a, a random player in the game, 
he'd overheard this conversation I had with Laura. And he said, you've got it all wrong. Like the Grand Canyon's still going to be there this time next year. <laughs> oh, next no, 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 uh, no, 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 but, no. But, but this, this poker game won't be. Like this is such a great game. How can you leave? Brother, and man. I was like, you know what? You're absolutely right. Laura, like, go on a group oh, call uh, without me, error. and we'll um, uh, we'll hang out when you come back. Uh, and she did. She did actually. She did. And um, uh, so I stayed and played in the game, and uh, it was a pretty good game. Uh, and then basically, when it, when I had this job off from Goldman, I, I sort of thought about it, and it was a little bit like a similar the sequencing, the sequencing yeah. events. Uh, if I didn't take the job offer at Goldman. Uh, poker would still be there, um, uh, but if I turn down uh, that that offer at Goldman, I may never get a chance to go in the city again. Right. So I thought via that kind of that that kind of logic, uh, yes. I keep my basically keep your options open by taking the job now, even if I didn't really want to. And my heart was in poker. I thought, you know what? If it doesn't work out, uh, I can always go back to poker. That's, that's that's pretty amazing. I have actually a friend of mine who did the exact same thing as you, but the girl got on a plane and went back to Canada. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Canada's but, a bit closer than London. Yeah, exactly. That's funny. That's funny. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's funny now. Like when when I when I meet people in real life now, James, I, I tell them I'm a trader now, and the uh, the the responses I get is so much more favorable <laughs> than when I say I'm a poker player. <laughs> It's, like I mean, the big the big issue with me a lot of time with the girlfriends was the father in laws, you know, or the the you know their fathers. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just like I don't know. It's a hard thing to explain to people that hey, I, this is what I do for a living, you know. But uh, well, look, I had to start with the Jewish mother persuading her. Oh God, okay, you know, yeah. and and um, you know the amazing thing is is uh, there's a history of card playing and not gambling, but card playing. Um, in my family, so she sort of understood it pretty well. Okay. Uh, but every, everyone thinks, oh, you know, poker is gambling. They don't really understand edge and and right. and mm-hmm. you know, getting your money in good and so on, having plus EV. Uh, and she was always kind of against it, but understood sort of back my judgment, um, uh, you know, to continue. But but never liked it. And yeah. then it was only when I won that tournament for four hundred thousand that she said, oh, go and play more. <laughs> you're winning good money. Right, right. It was just, you know, she didn't realize, oh, I happened to get lucky in that tournament. But, you know, she didn't care about the fact that I'd won, I don't know, say 85% of months were winning months in, in, the, in the couple of years gambling before that. Wow. Right, right. It's sort of people are so results orientated yes. in the way they think. Oh, and rather, than, rather yeah. than EV. And I think I spend probably the first third of the book trying to explain mm-hmm. to non gamblers how to think in terms of EV. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, th- I think you do it really, I think it's a, you do it in a real digestible way for people who don't have the backgrounds that we do have. And I think, and I wanted to bring that up because I thought it's such a powerful point because like your life trajectory could have just gone totally different. You know, like obviously it seems like you made the right choice, you know, doing what you did, but like thinking in that manner, uh, you know, allowed, you know, a different outcome for you. And I just, you know, these are things I think on too, you know, I probably all people of our background and, you know, poker playing, et cetera. So um, that's, that's interesting. And it's interesting for me because I would have given a finger to work on that GS desk. So, you know, it's like, Oh, he, he hesitated. I'd be like, they're like, would you like a, a yes, I'll take it. <laughs> but this guy, yeah, but I think that, that was ultimately probably one of the reasons I didn't do that well there initially was because I didn't have the, the hunger and the passion for it. Uh, uh, like the other, like the other kids did. 
Well, you know, it's it's just the history of that firm. You know, mm. you've got guys like Henry Weinberg or uh, Sidney Weinberg starting as a janitor's assistant at $3 a week, uh, you know, cleaning spittoons, then rising to the president of the firm and then his son too, uh, you know, the Weinberg dynasty there. And you, you know, you have treasury sector secretaries, Robert Rubin, all these people coming out of there. So it's sort of like the holy grail of financial institutions. Um, yeah, no doubt. The time, no doubt. You know. Yeah, it's good to have on the TV. No doubt about that. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so, 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 what was it about market making, James, that you struggled with? I know you said maybe passion. Like, what, what was it? Because then, because I, I imagine once you went to the buy side, that that was something that was more suitable for you. Yeah, I, I think uh, basically I didn't really know much about trading or the functioning of the markets, except for my best friend at the time. He bought me for my twenty-first birthday a copy of Market Wizards. Oh yeah, by Jack, Jack Schwager. Classic. And I, yeah, and I, Market Wizards and New Market Wizards, and I devoured mm-hmm. these sort of trading uh, books yeah. or yeah. interviews with the top traders, and they were all uh, having views on the economy or stocks and, and betting on it, uh, and it was basically the buy side. And I thought when yeah. I went it was when I signed up for trading that was what it was going to be. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. Uh, and when when I turned up at Goldman for a trading job, uh, market making was a very different thing. You have clients exactly. that bid offer. You could have been buying and selling cars, not not financial instruments. Well, uh, yeah, you're there to provide liquidity. liquidity. Yeah. But yeah. So the being, I didn't realize it was a client-facing business, and mm. uh, you know, it's amazing. I think I, I needed to go to the toilet one day when I first started, and they're like, "You can't just leave the desk without telling someone." You exactly. You got, you got to tell the guy next to you because exactly. the client might come on and want to market. Yeah. And make them a price. Yeah. And I think when you're used to being uh, a poker player and, and, and doing things uh, in oh, your own yeah. time and your own speed, uh, that was kind of took some getting used to. <laughs> um, um, and I think the truth is, is that they, were, they, they threw me in at the deep end and I never really had a mentor there. If there was one oh. guy who just sort of said, look, James, this is how it works. This is what a bid is. This is what an offer is, you know, uh, bullish parish, uh, you know, even hit, you know, I hit the bed, lift the offer, all these things. Like I was like, it was like a different language and no one sort of mm-hmm. really explained it. And and I think if I went back there now as a market maker, um, you know, I did a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time it just sort of was, I really, I think I was on a convertible bond desk for three months and I, nice. and I really didn't know, I really didn't know what a, a convert was. I didn't oh. know what an option was. It was crazy. Wow. Uh, okay. How, how, I thought the training was poor. Maybe it's all, you know, I'm not blaming anyone. I could have gone away and really stayed till midnight every night and done the work and found out myself. Um, Uh, But I just didn't take to it. And I was very lucky because another poker connection, uh, a friend of mine uh, was an avid poker player and he he, he knew someone that was running a small buy-side commodity fund. Uh, that loved poker and was crazy about poker at that time and he introduced me and we went out for this big dinner and we're drinking some great red wine and um, we stayed in touch because we had the trading and the poker connection and I think he always from the beginning was like you've got to come work for me you've got to or there's a seat here whenever you want it Uh, and come the end of the second year at Goldman I was like honestly this isn't for me I'm going to try the buy side so it was actually a big step down in terms of size and prestige (laughs) Yes. Uh, but I was very lucky because I went to this small commodity shop, basically a uh, prop trading house. Yeah. Uh, but it was the boss's own money, and mm. it felt much more like the sort of the con- con- 
congenial atmosphere yep. uh, amongst the like young poker players that I was used to before. Yeah, because see, like, so you didn't have that culture at Goldman where the old guys would take the young guys out drinking at night, and uh, no. you know, you'd learn well, also that. Maybe they did. Just... Maybe they did, but they didn't invite me. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't okay. think so. I don't think All right. so. Yeah, because that's how I learned, you know, because the old guys mm. would take you for a beer and go, okay, kid, you really screwed up, but here, you know, this is how we do it next time, right? Mm. So, uh, well, maybe, maybe that's like the corporate, you know, people were, people were in at right. six in the morning, leaving yeah. at five or six at night. They want to go home to their family. They're just yeah, putting that, yeah. uh, that atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, early 90s. Whereas, so. funny enough, the, the, that prop shop I joined, the, the, the main boss that gave me that job, uh, he was actually, I think he got divorced the year before and he, <laughs> yeah, plenty of, sort of time, plenty of time in the evenings, and he'd invite like literally the whole desk out to go mm-hmm. drink in, like basically his favorite Italian restaurant. We'd just go yep. there, Tinello was on the table, and we'd sort of drink and talk about the markets all night. Nice, uh, nice, and, and that times. was really uh, very lucky that I fell into that. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. That that's how I was raised in the business. So that was mm. that. That's a it's a nice that's a nice uh, environment to be in. Definitely. Yeah. So you go from like a, so it was definitely like, it was like a corporate environment. Then you have more of a, yeah, like, like you said, a cozy environment. I could see that. So, so when you're on the buy side, James, like tell, tell us a little bit about, um, I guess your trajectory through, um, you know, the buy side, your trading style, um, et cetera. And yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Go with that. Well, I think, uh, you know, no one tells you how to trade and there are lots of different styles to do it. I probably, you know, I read those Market Wizard books so many times that I tried to to, to take the the pieces of information from that that made sense to me uh, and fit in with my personality um, a little bit from the, the, the gambling background to, to trade like that. So uh, I was basically a directional trader, uh, took a view, made a bet, and wouldn't say necessarily had tight stock losses, but overall was always cognizant of, of the downside uh, so thinking about everything in terms of risk reward it didn't really matter what I was trading mm-hmm. whether it was an equity a bond a commodity um, uh, you name it I probably traded it at some point um, so but uh, there was no quantitative trading for me uh, it really was sort of do, do research by reading and watching price action and talking mm-hmm. to other people and, and just getting involved and, and, and seeing and feeling a trade feeling the market mm-hmm. definitely Definitely. Did you, uh, and, and when you were doing that, so I, I guess there was, you know, very, very little sort of algorithmic trading that these, that the prop firms use now for execution. Um, so were you guys executing using algos or was that just starting or? Um, I think when I first traded, yeah, it was voice broking. I sort of give the, yeah, yeah. the, the orders to the broker and they, they'd execute execute it and then I think you know a few years after I'd started the, the, the you know we had the direct execution on our, on our desktops and I had an assistant that would, that would uh, uh, click the buttons I never I never actually uh, bought or sold myself because for me having having that on my my desk would be like a slot machine and <laughs> trade too much you know yeah over trade yeah I always prefer to give my order via someone whether it was a broker or an assistant Smart. Uh, or a trading desk Smart. Um, but m- most traders uh, do the orders themselves. Yeah, they like to get a feel for the market. I know I do. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. That, that's really interesting. So, so James, did you, you know, one of the things I noticed 
when I transition transitioned to poker, or I mean to trading from poker, um, and working, you know, talking with newer people, I realized like I almost not to say like I'm better than anybody, but because I've had gambling experience, a certain, you know, I guess as far as losing and the the mindset that goes into trading, I didn't have to work on. It was something I already developed from poker. Did you mm. find that with when you went to the buy side that these things, you just had to kind of learn more of like the technical aspect of these things, like the, the you know, the losing, handling losses, et cetera, things of that nature. No, you maybe had I a think, leg up I think on that's it. fair to say. I think, I think it's fair to say, yeah, that, you know, sort of, I guess I started gambling when I was 15 or 16. Uh, so by the time I was prop trading on the buy side, uh, I was probably 25, 26. So, I, you know, I'd had 10 years of, of gambling. I don't use like that word gambling. In the book, I sort of use uh, quotation marks around it a little bit. Um, right, right. The editors are actually saying, why are you using quotation marks around gamblers? You are a gambler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was trying to explain, well, no, not really. You know, try and make plus EV decisions. Yeah, we're edge, we're edge say, gamblers. You could, say, uh, yeah. Yeah, you could say crossing the road is a gamble. It's just a question of, you know, how much of a uh, risk you take. Um, but yeah, I guess that kind of stuff is, is built into me, really. Uh, but it was learning the fundamentals of the market, which was, or still is, much tougher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, because you know, because we work, you know, well, well, JJ works with them. I'm, I'm kind of there for the ride, etc. But, uh, yeah, because you know, a lot of people have to like. That's uh, more often, I think, probably the more important part is you know, people going on tilt, right, James? Like, like people losing, going on tilt, you know, doubling down on their position. Um, and it's like, hey, like that's you know, we gotta get this part under control first. But yeah, yeah so yeah, interesting because I noticed, you know, as as a trading educator now that Ray. He's only been trading eight months or so, but his learning curve has been better than most who start just green without any sort of risk management experience. Um, you know, I guess they call that bankroll management in your world or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. You know, but that makes a big difference. Makes a big difference. You know, mm-hmm. interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I so think I think, I think the way, you know, there's, there's two parts of trading. One is, is, having the right trades or the fundamentals and the other side is the, the bankroll management. And, and first and foremost, you've got to have an edge. You've got to have uh, the fundamentals, right? Because however good your bankroll management is, if you, if you try and play roulette, for example, you can't win, mm-hmm. you know, if the odds are against you in the long run. So you, you, you know, you've got to have an edge in what you do, but then just as equally, there's no point having an edge if you can blow up or, or not stay in the game or not control it. So, mm-hmm. Uh, I guess that is a, a different sort of discipline. And I think I was actually definitely my strongest part throughout my career uh, until the end, probably actually where the money got much, much bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, com- it's completely different. It's one thing sort of saying, you know, these are the odds and, and this is kind of what you should be doing. Uh, but when the, when the numbers become so insane you know you really have to work every day on the mental side uh, i can imagine of the game yeah now when you were uh, managing 1.6 was that your own fund or were you a part of a group of funds or how did that well so it was i was trading at a uh, um another not more but another i left more by the stage and it was a, another u.s 
to the premium macro hedge fund called Graham Capital. Oh, really? And, yeah. Wow. Uh, and the way, oh, you know Graham? I mean, yes. Yeah. They, they, now, when I joined, it was about 50% quant, 50% discretionary, and I was a discretionary trader there. Now it's, it's much more quant heavy than discretionary, but they still have discretionary. So I think they, they had about, when I joined, three billion under management, mm-hmm. um, and they allocated that three billion for the discretionary fund to a bunch of traders that work there, and it was a complete meritocracy. So wow. the better you did, the more they give you, the, nice. the worse you do, they sort of take it away. And, eat, uh, eat what you they, kill. Yeah, and whilst it was was you know okay, I had uh, quite a lot of money, or one point six yards under under management. You know that that's at the leverage level. They'd already put the leverage on the fund side on that, so oh, okay. it wasn't like I was managing managing that much clients. It was probably more, I don't know, say they use five, six, maybe yeah. even seven times leverage at times. Yeah. So you know, maybe I was running uh, probably close to three hundred, but but yeah, five leverage. Times lever- yeah, 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 that makes sense. Like that. So uh, just out of curiosity, I just interject because of the times that we're going through now and, and you've been in macro and, and a lot of new retail traders. And I've got to ask because most retail traders think macro is something that you get next to the kale at Whole Foods. And now it's important, <laughs> right? So I, I want to give the folks at home, right, an inside look into what you guys are doing and thinking at moments like this what your analysts are looking at, how you're pulling back on risk. If you could just kind of tell people what's going on at night in these places when the markets are like this. Hmm. Well, you've got to understand that the markets aren't like this very often. Mm, um, exactly. You know, so that, that's not the, the bread and butter. You know, macro in general has, has underperformed massively over the last decade uh, because essentially macro is betting on, on interest rates and currencies. Mm-hmm. And in general, you know, and, and, and usually volatility and, and we've had, you know, such low rates without moving, you know, if, if, if rates are negative to zero across most of the world or, or moving within a 1% uh, uh, bracket for, for years at a time, uh, and the majors, uh, and most of the FX cross pairs that are not moving either. It's been a very sort of different game to this uh, explosion over the last month uh which has probably taken everyone by surprise well, well it has done uh because corona is what you know the financial crisis was something where you know in 08 where subprime uh unrolled or unraveled relatively quick slowly yes you know, there were yes signposts you know the, yes. some of the was it their best times funds went uh, uh so hedge funds were sort of in trouble uh and the market didn't peak till a year later. Yeah. This has happened, you know, within a matter of a month or two. Yeah. Uh, I, and when you look at the chart, it's just, you know, devastating how, how except for 1987, the speed of this move um, has been something else. So, do you, do, you, do you at all look at market structure? I mean, for the last four months, I was telling people this market is going up like a penny stock pump and dump. And it was basically, they cut off the sell, they took the price higher, and then pull the rug, which I used to do 20 times a day in different stocks. But, and I can't believe the way this market is traded this way. Um, and the, the, do you guys look at market structure at all? Because we look at something called market profile, which is a, uh, 
it, it shows us where value is in, in these markets. And when you see a market just going higher and higher and higher without building out a trading range, um, you know, that kind of scares guys like me, you know, do, do you, did you look at stuff like that in, in, your in terms of charts and ranges uh, or, um, or actually market structure uh, like you know I find like say say I'm taking a stock from five dollars to 20 bucks what I'd like to do is I take it up to five, uh, from five to ten drop it down to 750 trade in a range from 750 to 10 let the you know let it bounce around a little build up a trading range for a couple of weeks then move it up build it you know that sort of thing and we don't have that in in this market you just kind of just shot right up without any uh, any backfilling. They never backfilled the shorts on on the way up on this thing. So, I'm I'm just curious if if you folks look at anything like that at all. Um, sorry, I'm not I'm not really with you on this one. Uh, okay. uh, I mean, the market was such sort of low vol, slow condition building mm-hmm. up, and, and you know it's pretty amazing. Uh, I heard an interview with Tudor. Uh, yep. TV Tudor Jones mm-hmm. when he was I think it was in Davos so that must have been mid-January yeah and he said uh, he's bullish in general um, but he wouldn't be long one single thing right here of any mm. asset class basically mm. because yep. uh, this this corona uh, is breaking out and I'd never heard of corona uh, this, this was the first time I you know I thought he was talking about corona you know like the, the Japanese central bank I, 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 I I hadn't, I hadn't heard of Corona mid-Jan. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, and it's amazing because the market went up for another month. Mm-hmm. Even with this going on. And the vol was at the low. And, and uh, uh, it really wasn't until towards the end of February um, you know, when they pulled the rug. Uh, so was, I think it's, you know, it seems so easy to say, oh, the market's at the high and this thing... You know, if it, if it was just sort of looking at some of the theory from the, the book I've written, you'd say, well, if we look at the risk reward, okay, the market might go up slowly a little bit more, like it sort of has done for the last, you know, decade really, <laughs> uh, just gr- grinding up. Uh, but okay, you might lose one, two, three, maybe even four percent being short for the next two, three months. Uh, but but if this if this uh, uh, virus does spread and, and, and has serious repercussions, the downside could be massive. Uh-huh. So the risk reward is just incredible to be sure. Uh, you know, whether you do that when, when you're in the seat or not is, a, is another matter. Uh-huh. You say things in, in hindsight. Exactly. Uh, yeah. When you're sitting in the seat, I would have thought, look, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to judge because I'm naturally always been a pretty bearish trader and, <laughs> and I made the majority of my money in, in, in down moves. And, uh, you know, it is, you know, this is no awful thing in the, for the world, but, you know, from a, a trading perspective, it's been frustrating for me for the first time in over a year where I really wanted to be in the action, so trading every second, uh, you know, these last few months. Yeah, so, so you, haven't, you haven't been um, trading the past couple of years? Well, I've been trading PA, but I haven't been sitting in the uh, a macro seat for the for the hedge fund uh, the last mm-hmm. year, yeah. last two years now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. You know, uh, James, I want to, uh, you know, I want to bring it back to like the bankroll management just for a second, mm-hmm. because you know you mentioned <clears throat> for you it was tough when you st- you know I guess when the size when you started trading larger, and that's always been 
a difficulty of mine, whether like in poker or trading, right? So moving up stakes in poker, cash games was always a tough thing. You know, it's like, you know, you, you take shots at games, right? But if you lose, it's like so much more substantial to your bankroll because you're playing double the stakes, you know, and it would always affect me a little bit more mentally. Um, you know, it's like, oh, I, I just lost what I would have won all of last week or, um, you know what I mean? Like things of that nature. And even adding size to trading, it's like that adds that extra pressure. And how did you, how do you practice? Like, how do I get better at this? Like, how did you, um, or am I just, is it the size just too much? I think I, I had a slightly different experience because in, in poker, I never had an issue with this because when you sit down in the game, you choose what trips you're going to put out in front of you mm -hmm. uh, and how much you can lose if you, if you set a stop loss effectively. Yeah. And you can, you can predetermine that decision a week or a month in advance, how much you're going to risk this day, this week, this month. Um, and, and you need to get comfortable with that downside number before you even start. If mm -hmm. you can sit down and say, okay, I know I'm going to lose, uh, or say my bankroll is X and I'm prepared to lose 20% uh, of that bankroll in the next three months or, or one month even, uh, and you think, okay, so this is how much I'm risking, what's the biggest game or, or the most profitable game I can play in for that money and then just play to your limit. Uh, and if it goes wrong, you, you, you know in your mind what, you, what you've lost already and you're comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. I found in training it's a little bit more difficult to do that because unless you're just buying options uh, or, or set a very stringent stop losses, I mean, the size I was trading, you couldn't just set stop losses. There's no liquidity to get out of a lot of positions uh, uh, that I'm in. Uh, that the market's ticking day and night and, and you don't know uh, how much you're, you can lose. It's much, much harder to judge uh, your bankroll or, or the swings you're going to have. And the markets are so unpredictable. I mean, in a poker game, you, know, you can lose one, two, three buy-ins, maybe four if on, a, on an outside day. You know, you look at the market, what's happened, and, you know, we had a whole of last year, the S&P didn't have one 5% drawdown. And now we've had three 9% moves, swings in, in, in a week. First time since 1929. So these kind of multi-move standard deviation moves seem to happen much more often than, than any model will predict. And it's much harder to, to judge uh, your downside. But I think always, you know, I think I start finish the conclusion to the introduction of my book saying a, a gambler, the first thing they think about is what's the downside. Right. So in terms of buying the book, it's 20 bucks, whatever it costs roughly to, to buy the book and maybe nine hours of your time if you're going to read from cover to cover. Uh, and then you can then you can think, okay, is um, you know what's the upside? But if you protect yourself against the downside first, um, and obviously try and play with what you're comfortable with, um, you know you don't go to trading massive size overnight. Same as poker, you, you have to build the bankroll. Okay, occasionally yeah. you take a shot in a game which is a bit out of your comfort zone, but you know the steadier you can do it. I mean, there's no rush. There's always another game. There's always another poker game. Right. There's always another trading day. Uh, so instead of trying to be a hero day one, if you can build it over a long period, and you know, a trading year even feels like an eternity. I mean, there's, <laughs> what is there? Yeah. I can't remember how, 200 or trading days in a year or something exactly. like that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It feels like a very long time. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it sounds boring, but patience and just, I think, the key is, is uh, to be in the right frame of mind so when those fat pitches do come, you can take them. Mm -hmm. right.
right, uh, right. Yeah. 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 You know, it's, it's always, it's always a tough thing for me to like balance like the aggression, James, right. It's like, uh, you know, cause I don't want to be too passive. I don't want to be too aggressive. And so like, I always, that's what I'm always like thinking along the lines. And I like what you said. Um, I believe you said this in the book. It's like, you need a little bit of pain, like on your mm. losses, but not too ma- too much as to it clouds your judgment. Hmm. I mean, it's got to sting a little bit when you lose. Otherwise, you just don't care. I mean, like if right. I play in a home, I play in a home game uh, for for a hundred bucks or matchsticks or whatever. Uh, it's impossible for me to play well. Uh, but if I play for, I don't know, a million dollar swing in a night, uh, it's going to be pretty tough to play well as well. Mm-hmm. So I guess yeah. it's just finding the the right number for you. Uh, some people play very small relative to the night. Well, other play. Not everyone goes by Kelly. It's sort of uh, finding the right level for you. Right. Yeah. For me, that worked when it stung a little when I lost. Uh, but that wasn't. Uh, I didn't really think about the money during the game. Right. 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 Uh, Kelly, you're talking about the the Kelly Criterion. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously, if we're all machines, we probably follow that. Um, yeah. Uh, but that doesn't always work out like that in reality. Right, right, right. Do you just want to explain to that with the to the, the audience? Mm, yeah, uh, I, what that is. What that I think is. in very simple terms, Kelly uh, basically says if you want to grow your bankroll the most efficiently, you should you should wager uh, a percentage of your bankroll in in accordance to how much edge you've got. So mm. if you're tossing a coin and and you've got sixty forty and you've got a twenty percent edge, you you should bet twenty uh, percent of your bankroll. Or, but if your edge is only two percent, you you know if you've got a hundred dollar bankroll, you only want to bet two dollars, just mm-hmm. so in a quarter, which kind of makes sense. If if you're a hundred percent favorite, you're going to bet everything. If you've got mm-hmm. zero chance to win, you're going to bet nothing, mm-hmm. and and it's just you know pretty logical sort of straight line. Uh, but in reality, a it's hard to work out what your edge is in advance. <laughs> yeah, when right. you sit down in a poker game or uh, you're trading, like how do you know what your edge is every bet you make? And and B, you know, sometimes that great game is going to come about, which is slightly too big for a bankroll uh, that you don't get to determine how often it plays or, or what size it is. And you've got to make that judgment call at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I think I think I think one of the points I tried to make in the book was that uh, it's all very well being a, a theoretician, uh, uh, but in reality you've got to be pragmatic and 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 mm-hmm. do what a you feel comfortable with and, and what, what the circumstances uh, oh, yeah. demand. Oh yeah. That's, that's, you know, that's another, that's another tough thing. Uh, I think for myself too, James, you know, especially like when poker, when the, the solvers started getting real popular, you know, I'm not sure how much poker you still play, um, <clears throat> but was, was balancing playing the, you know, an equilibrium strategy when, but I'm playing against someone who's not playing an equilibrium strategy and knowing that, mm-hmm. Hey, I, I'm, it's actually probably better for me to play exploit like exploitative here. And then like, that was a, a interesting transition for me. So I guess like, you know, for the audience who doesn't play poker, it's just more of, you know, being practical versus theoretical. And I think that's another thing, finding that, that sweet point, right? Mm. Mm. I think what, what I try and say in the book is if you find the theoretical equilibrium to start with or get close to that, then, then you're in a position. If you, if you to start make an ex- case, right. Then, then, I mean, a very simple example, say you're playing uh, rock, paper, scissors. If you're playing a random opponent, if you start off always randomizing your choice, whether you go rock, paper, or scissors, I think I think everyone's familiar with that game, right? Where you, when yeah. You go, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if you pick a third each and randomize it, 
you can never be exploited. Like, no, however, however great a player you're playing against, at rock, paper, scissors, mm-hmm. if you just randomize your choice, you can't be beaten. And now, so if you go into the game playing like that, and now you observe your opponent's tendencies, and if they go rock a little bit too often, then you want to up your uh, paper right. percentage. And so right. now you can still exploit him. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, if you can find that default equilibrium in, in whatever game you're playing, uh, you're off to a good start. Right, right, right. No, well said. Well said. You, another thing you stated in the book um, that I, I like that you, you state that all successful gamblers have a strong understanding uh, of three facets. So you, the fundamentals, strategy, and execution. Uh, can you just talk you know, briefly on that? Yeah, I think the fundamentals is, is the, the gambling theory. So the expected value, what are the odds, uh, making estimations uh, or when it comes to the markets. Um, fundamentals in the market, you know, what's the supply, what's the demand, what are the, what are the things that are going to move the price? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the other section is strategy. So I, I would say strategy and tactics. So, you know, how are you going to address this game? What's your game plan uh, from the top down and also from the bottom up? And constructing uh, a sort of a vision of how things are going to play out and, and you have a base case and then adjust as new information comes in. Uh, but but always thinking like where's my edge? Uh, is this a zero sum game? Is it uh, how how can I exploit? Uh, what are the tactics? What are the patterns? Uh, and so on. Um, and then the final part of the book is you know that's great having a theory. It's great having strategy. But if you can't execute it, in reality and I guess that's a mental game. Yeah. Uh, then it's only good in the textbook. But I thought I thought that was the sort of way I ended up split, splitting the book into those three sections. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, no, perfect. Uh, looking, I get, yeah. looking forward to reading the book. You kind of remind me a little bit of Victor Niederhofer, the, the oh, tennis, the really? trading, education of a speculator. Oh, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of. My, my, my friend that gave me that Market Wizards book when I was 21, he gave me two books, or three books. He gave me Market Wizards, New Market Wizards, and that Niederhofer book. Education uh, of a speculator. The old man yeah. in the end is probably the best trading story, <laughs> you know. I mean, I, I've, never, I've never met Victor, uh, but I enjoyed reading the book, and he's uh, he's certainly a lot smarter than I am, that's for sure. But he's, he sounds like a complete nut nut with his, some of his theories. And, oh, no kidding! <laughs> and I think he swings swings a lot more in his portfolio than I, than I ever did. Uh, yeah, he's got some pretty good nerves, <laughs> that guy. <laughs> it's nice to be uh, uttered in the same breath as him, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess one more concept I uh, I want to talk to you. I obviously I don't want to you know ruin everything in the book, but um the the concept of inflated wins. You want to, can you speak on that for us, James? Yeah, I mean it, I think it's a, the 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 default human tendency is is uh, when you're winning to take profits and when you're losing to to, to wait to get unstuck, uh, um, and whether that's poker or the markets or your personal life, find out, you know whether you're underwater in a house or your mortgage, um, uh, just very fundamental to, I don't really know why that is, but it's just so the opposite of, of anything that any strong gambler does or professional. Uh, you know, you want to let those, those wins ride as long as you can and, and, and clip those losses. And, you know, the main reason 
uh, is because you play better when you're winning and you play worse when you're losing. Right, right. So it's a psychological thing. I mean, the machine doesn't look whether they're winning or, lo- or they're losing. They just look at going forward, are you a favorite and by how much? Or what's mm-hmm. the state of the game? But a human, when you get caught up in, in, in certain uh, activities, whatever it happens to be, uh, subconsciously, winning breeds confidence. And then most people play much better as a front runner than, than when they're behind. And that's the time you want to you want to maximize when those spots are there and you're, you're feeling good. And I was thinking about it when I was writing the book, for example, that there was a, uh, you know, a lot of people say, if you're writing a book, sit down at nine in the morning and write till either you've written 3,000 words in a day or till 3 p.m. So say like six hours, maybe stopping for lunch and just do that every day. And I tried that. And then there were, there were sort of two week periods where uh, I didn't really have writer's block, but whatever I was writing was completely useless and, and uh, couldn't get down what I wanted to say. And it was just a really frustrating process. And I thought, why am I doing this? Like if I was gambling and I'm losing, I just take a break. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so I stopped writing and did something else or did another chapter that, that I wasn't struggling on. Uh, and the flip side is, is when things are going well, I'm not going to stop at three in the afternoon. I'm going to sort of sit there for two, Dang three it. days straight. And right. sleep. <laughs> I don't even want to go to the toilet or maybe you like have takeaway like at the table. I'm, I, you know, I'm like, you can't drag me away when I'm, when I'm, when I'm on a roll or, or winning. Yeah. And I think, uh, I don't think that's necessarily natural for, 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 uh, for most people. Right, right. Yeah. And do you have any theories, right? Because, you know, I'm thinking this as well as I'm reading your book, like, why are a lot of these concepts counterintuitive to us or to people, you know, without gambling, you know, lack for a better term, gambling experience? Honestly, I don't know. I'm not. uh, I think one of the things I've tried to do in my book is, is be practical and and use my experiences that I've drawn on mm-hmm. uh, sort of the way I see it. A lot of other material out there is more academic or quotes right. uh, psychologists or theories like that. Um, I don't know the reason. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe you could say. I think the only thing I'd, I'd say is like the middle class have such a good life relatively now that they don't need to take risks. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. if, you, if you if you if you go to school and manage to go to college and get a, a decent middle-class job, uh, you have a pretty good life. Right, um, right. So why, why would you become an entrepreneur? Why would you become a gambler? Why would you take risk when, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the more you've got to, uh, the less you've got to lose, the, the more you can go for it. That's why a lot of immigrants have become so successful. You know, George Soros maybe would be the <laughs> extreme example of that. Exactly. Um, you know, but say my grandparents came over from, from Eastern Europe and uh, to avoid the Holocaust and all of them, you know, had to be entrepreneurial. They had to live on their wits. They had to stop mm-hmm. because they weren't going to get a job. They couldn't exactly. be a, a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, and today, um, you know, if you just keep your head down and you're slightly above average, you, you, you know, you're going to grind out a pretty decent life. So, uh, you know, maybe that's the reason why people are sort of, relatively risk averse i would say yeah that's true i, I mean that's a solid i, I, I haven't read anything to, to, to back this up uh, quickly have you read the alchemy of finance because i tried reading it yeah. when it first came out i couldn't figure the damn thing out i'll get to try and read it again uh, i thought uh, the first the first half um 
you could probably live without. Uh, okay. But the, the second half where he does a, a George Soros does a, a, a trade blog, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the second half of that book is just incredible. If you read, and there aren't actually that many sort of that much literature on, on, on trading uh, markets that, that, you know, that really influenced me or I think worth reading. But, you know, that's one of them because it shows how he goes through the, the same issues like we do. Like the first, I think he chronicles a year of his trading and the first half of the year, oh my God, he was crushing it. Like okay. the size of the positions were just crazy. Things would go against him and he was just like, no, oil's was going down, I'm staying short. It doesn't matter if it rallied 10% in my face. Uh, wow. I'm going to increase. It's just amazing. And he made so much, huge percentage return and everything he said sort of happened. And the second half was just like the complete opposite. He went into a like, mm. lockdown mode. One day he was long, one day he was short. He was trying to hedge something with something else. And it was like complete sort of uh, uh, mist or fog in his mind. But he managed mm. to sort of, I think, roughly break even in that period. And it just shows you that even the greats like that, um, you know, you go through different cycles. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you're seeing the ball and sometimes you're not. Definitely. Like, uh, I'd give that, that second half of that another go, maybe. Yeah, I think I, I think I will, you know. Yeah, it's true. Sometimes it's not easy. The... I had to I no. had to <laughs> I had to sorry to I mean like, I, I remember I was actually I think I was reading it by the pool and I think I went to a conference in Miami or something and I, I think I had to read that book like three or four times on the plane that, that second half to fully understand but, what was going on in his mind. Now he's from your alma mater, isn't he? He's ex London School of Finance, is that? LSE, I think, yeah, I think he was, well, he, he, or economics, his, right? yeah. his guru was Karl Popper, who was in, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, fascinating stuff, amazing. <laughs> so, so James, uh, t- tell us about your company, Cerebral Gym. Well, actually, I'm, I'm actually out of Cerebral Gym now. I, ha- I, I had a, uh, an idea, I'd seen how, um, uh, gyms have gone away from sort of membership-based to class-based gyms where you, where you go and you take a class and you join in, uh, whether it's Barry's Bootcamp or Soul Cycle. And I thought, could, could that translate and do the same thing, but for intellectual activities, from learning Chinese and learning to play bridge, opera appreciation, coding, and all sorts of things. Like, could people come and take a class in a group uh, in like this sort of uh, gym center, but for the mind? Mm-hmm. Um, and I played around with it for about a year and for various reasons, it didn't really work in that format. And someone else has actually bought it off me, the idea and they're, they're running it in a slightly different way now. So I'm not actually involved with uh, Cerebral Gym anymore. Okay. Okay. I'm still, still cheering it on from the sidelines. Good All stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Are you, uh, are you going to uh, start back into, you're going to get your own fund going here? Well, I'm actually tempted. I've been I've been uh, <laughs> speaking with an ex poker player friend of mine who who uh, has actually got into uh, quant and AI trading and, and he's had a Bitcoin fund which has produced I think 1,100 percent over the last uh, two years. Nice. And it's not like he's been long only or short. He, he yes. trades on a five five hour time time frame. Okay. Um, but I've never really uh, been into quant trading or Bitcoin, but he's sort of got an algorithm that's working really well. He's it's me, James. Could I run the business of it or manage the business for him, and and uh, he'd do the trade. And that that kind of sounds appealing to me because I'm not really in a space right now where I want to. I've got other things going on, uh, lots of other projects uh, where I don't want to spend 15 hours a day in front of the Bloomberg like I did for the last 10 years. Um, so that might be a sort of a compromise to sort of 
get back in the finance game um, and, and, you know, I miss the trading and, and so on, but without, uh, you know, the dedication you need to try and try and get decent returns and beat this market is, is, is immense. It is definitely very much so. Mm-hmm. 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 All right. So that's, that's it for me, Jay, any more questions for our guy? Uh, no, I, it's just really, really, uh, really nice meeting you. And, uh, you know, it was nice to give our, our viewers, I swear, our listeners a little bit of a look behind the curtain. We try and do that every, you know, every time we do one of these and we have someone from the other side of the desk. It's, uh, it's nice to sort of lift the curtain a little bit. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. Well, thanks for having me on. It was nice to get away from the, the corona headlines for a few hours and, and just uh, <laughs> talk about something different or take a walk back down uh, memory lane. But um, I really enjoyed it, guys. And good luck with everyone and stay safe with this uh, outbreak and uh, don't crush the markets. Yes. Thank yes, you, sir. man. I appreciate it. So that concludes today's episode of Confessions of a Market Maker. If you guys enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review it for us. If you guys are interested in learning market profile, keen on trading a liquid market, et cetera, et cetera, come join JJ and I at microefutures.com. Uh, James, uh, tell the listeners uh, where they can find you and I guess anything else you'd like them to know. Um, well, I haven't really got, I, I'm, I'm uh, at, at James Vogel. That's James V-O-G-L, no E, just V-O-G-L on Twitter. Uh, I think I'm on the same kind of name on Instagram or Facebook. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm around and hopefully, hopefully the book will come out next year uh, and I'll have a sort of slightly higher profile. Uh, but at the moment, I'm sort of still happy to lie low. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, definitely. I mean, de- definitely when that time comes around, uh, we'd love to have you back on. Definitely. We look forward to reading the book. Okay. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Uh, all right. All right. And so for James, he's JJ. I'm Ray Ray. You guys use stops, though. <laughs> have a good night, everyone.